This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. show. If you're a prog fan, this is a great week for you. Our guests this week are Steve Howe of Yes and Steve Hackett, formerly of Genesis. Apologies again for the slightly lo-fi sounding intro this month. I had a burst pipe in my flat. I was away on holiday and I've had to move out for a while. So, uh, chaos. First up, my interview with Steve Howe. I really enjoyed this. I thought he was really nice. I've liked Yes since I was a kid. They have a messy history and I don't like everything they've done and their ever-changing lineups can get frustrating. Their albums like Close to the Edge, The Yes Album, Fragile, and I would even say Going for the One, are benchmarks of a genre. I'm aware of how much Steve must have talked about some of these albums over the years, so I hoped I could find a way in that worked for both of us. Steve has a new album with his uh, jazz-inflected side project, the Steve Howe Trio, called New Frontier. So of course we talk about that too. I hope you enjoy. Hello, good afternoon. Hi, is that Steve? Yes, it is. Hi, it's Matt Royal. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you, mate? Okay, I'm okay, thank you. I've got my feet up, relaxing. Good. Are you at home? Um, well, home is a... It, 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 Relative No, word. not exactly home, but a good, uh, the second home. <laughs> I'm at my studio where I do a bit of work on, you know, when I've got things to do. So I'm, I'm out here. Great. Nice Excellent. What kind of year are you having? Terrific. Yeah, I mean, yes, kicked off with a, with a, with a cruise, and then we we kind of got busy in the summer with our the Royal Affair tour, which was you know a mixture of uh, four four acts ending with yes, and I got a chance to do a quick Asia spot for twenty minutes. So I mean, I had a really good time. So we're, we're delighted. Yeah. So you have a new album with the Steve Howe Trio called New Frontier. Mm. Um. Is the trio essentially you having fun? Is 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 that a project you do to kind of kick back? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, if we go back to two thousand eight when we released the Haunted Melody, um, Dylan and I often spoke about uh, the, the organ trio as a kind of entity that you know was was very compact and great communication. So we we, we found Ross, Dylan found Ross, and, and we did that. So basically, at that point, we're playing kind of a jazzy, you know, we've got some jazzy material in there from, from Jimmy Smith and Kenny Burrell. But basically, we added a little bit more to it. But, but you know, as, as the, the, the growth of the band, we did the trio and we did a few tours and we did Canada and we, we did several UK tours up till about five years ago. And then as we started this album... Um, you know, things got kind of heated up. Not only did I have to leave Asia to to, to concentrate on Yes, because being in two bands of that ilk was uh, was very uh, difficult to balance. So that allowed me to think about the trio. So we thought, well, no, not more shows, and let's keep going. Let's let's try and invent some some new music that uh, that redefines the band. So that that's how we've got here, really. Yeah. So ostensibly, it's your kind of jazz project. But I guess there's always been elements of jazz in your playing. I mean, even on like your first solo record, say something like The Nature of the Sea, yeah. you know, your, your playing is, is reminiscent of what you're doing with the trio, isn't it? 
Mm, it's true. There, there's little pockets of jazz. I mean, I mean, it draws on that that idea of improvisation that isn't simply structured around, uh, you know, certainly around blues, but structured about even psychedelia, you know. But it draws from the, the my my jazz, the pleasure I have listening to jazz and thinking about how, you know the great players that, that I've seen. Wes Montgomery when I was sixteen. And, you know, I met all my great, uh, uh, you know, the people I admired. So I, 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 I definitely stayed having a section of me that's, that's committed to, to a jazzy styling. Not necessarily jazz in the sense of player standard, like Misty or something. I don't know what to do. But, but when, when, we're, when we've got the freedom to, to choose our material, then we come up with what we've got. Yeah. So um, I've seen... Dylan play a few times with because I'm from I live in Westcliff on Sea near Southend, oh, yeah. so obviously Wilco Johnson's a local boy, so I've seen yes, um, yes, I've seen I've seen Wilco play, um, yes. and I've met uh, I've met Zoe, your daughter-in-law, actually, because um, mm. they're, they're local. So oh, she's lovely, yeah. Yeah, she's she's really nice. Um, how, what's it like playing with you know with, with your son? Is is it uh, is there naturally a telepathy there, or is it still a challenge in some ways, you know? Well, um, to go back to 1993, um, before that, my, my solo albums and most of my work had you know, been with Bill Bluford and, and Alan White. <clears throat> and um, when I started making solo albums, oh, we had Carl Palmer. And when I started making solo albums, I'd, uh, I'd drawn from Alan and, and Bill quite considerably. I got to the grand scheme of things, and I, and I wondered if Dylan was ready to, to join me. Because earlier he'd said, no, I'm not ready. I want, I want to forge something more of myself. So, which he had done. So by the time 93 came along, I was doing uh, the grand scheme of things. He, he got on board and, and played. And that, that, from then on, you know, Dylan is, has been my drummer on, when, when I've had drums on, on, on my solo records. Dylan's always done it. And that's been a, a, a great learning curve. But it's also been a very smooth and, and high uh, connection with him because uh, he, you know, being his dad, bringing him up and seeing what new music he was influenced on and it from, and basically he did draw from some of my same areas. Particularly, you know, he went his own went on his own course on on jazz appreciation. But before that, he, he you know he was an all round he wanted to be an all round drummer. Like I guess I'm an all round guitarist. So basically, he could turn his hand, and when he turned his hand to my solos, I thought it was perfect. You know, and uh, particularly Spectrum and and uh, quantum guitar where where it's really just Dylan and I pretty much especially on quantum there is nobody else so he's been a wonderful collaborator and he's been an inspiration and there's rarely a time when he doesn't know what the right thing to play is you know but we, we occasionally have bits of input and then we say well like how about if you went to half time and then went you know so we we, we try out ideas together and, and that's always been an unspoken rule that, that there's room to talk but most of it doesn't need talking <laughs> yeah and it must be a very different discipline for him compared to say the blockheads or wilco johnson um so yeah. Yeah, it's it's, Im it's impressive to sort of be able to dip into um yes. to dip very into much. that how does the uh so for this record for example how does the writing process work are you bringing in fully formed guitar parts or are you playing in a room together there's two main ingredients um we'll come to the second one second um basically we got together and, and I had about six or seven tunes and I said, look, this is just kind of like rough ideas, you know, that there's something in there. And some of them kind of worked, you know, and they, they, they started the process of accumulating some material. Obviously, it took them to, to rethink 
them a great deal and say, well, like, oh, before you got here, we were doing that tune, listen to this. And then I'd say, that's great, you know, keep, keep it like that. And then there was these tunes I had from Bill uh, over 10 years ago, and um, they, they lay g- gathering dust. And I pulled them out and I played them to Dylan and Ross, and they went, that's pretty nice, you know, let's, let's do the same on this. So we kind of rearranged, and, and, and I took some of the top lines and developed them, which Bill appreciated, and, uh, and therefore, you know, did a credit for me on them. So basically, we got three tunes that, that Bill uh, initiated, and... Uh, so I think that the way we went about it was was fairly open, providing nobody said, let's play a jazz standard, you know, because we'd, we'd been there and seen it and done it. And now we need to be uh, original in, in, in the true sense of the word. I mean, I think even jazz musicians went through that process. They relied on the standards. Uh, I think Miles Davis did. But then when he got to a certain point, he went, well, we don't need those now. <laughs> we can have our own tunes. And and I think we're we're quite enjoying that that period for the for the trio. Yeah, I, so it's an instrumental record, and uh, this question applies equally to sort of longer instrumental sections with yes as well. I wonder if there's is there generally visuals going on in your head? Um, is there a is there a story to these songs in your head, even well, though it's instrumental? What what part does your imagination, sort of the visuals in your head, play? Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to uh, pinpoint exactly which part of my bodily being is involved in these tunes. But I guess what I'd say is that they have a life story in them. You know, my my contributions, like Zodiac or something, you take that, there's a lot of my enjoyment for music built into that particular tune. It's got a little ramp, you know, it's got a melody, it's got a bridge, you know, and basically that's how I... um, feel it you know because if you don't feel the music you know then don't play it so i think i've always been able to attach uh emotions uh love you know uh the the, the general palette of, of of emotions that we can have somewhere in that music it's describing or, or playing back to me some of those emotions particularly era wise where the where the music was written at the time and it was written initially just initially not when it's recording right but it carries that story. It carries a little bit of that initial, well, I wrote that song when I was like, you know, this old or in that position or last year when I was running about doing this. So there's, there's kind of connection, particularly with my family and the, and the people I love, but also with sort of worldly stuff, like where I am, you know, a lot of, I wrote quite a bit of music in, in, in Switzerland or, or in Vancouver at one point or something. So I have got little stories of my own, but I'm happy to say they're secret. <laughs> Yeah, that's what comes through in the titles. You know, you title an instrumental piece, you know, with with an open book. I mean, what are you going to call this? You know, meat and two veg. You know, I mean, you wouldn't call the tune meat and two veg, especially for vegetarian. But basically, uh, you know, you look for a title that that, that summarizes something. So some of these tunes on here had some fairly dreadful earlier titles. You know, that were just like working titles, and sometimes you need a working title. And as we came to conclusion and we were looking at the, the mix and the running order, I kind of went, well, I, I, I can't start with this working title anymore. It doesn't say anything to me. You know? So, in fact, you know, I look back in either in my list of uh, t- spare titles that I've got or I suddenly thought, no, that, that's wrong. It, it could be this, you know. So, I mean, it's a lovely thing, titling instrumental music. I really enjoy it. And uh, there's no reason why... You, you can't satisfy something in the title, you know. Uh, 
you know, there were hit and misses in those titles, but um, basically that that's how it comes about. It's purely emotive. Yeah. Are you familiar with the band Mogwai, the Scottish band? Oh, yeah. Scottish no, band. No, not that familiar. I may have seen them. They're like a Scottish sort of post-rock band, mostly instrumental. Yeah. Um, and again, they uh, <laughs> their, their titles are often um, very striking and very humorous. I'll, I'll give you some examples. They have titles like... Um, uh, stop coming to my house and uh, superheroes of BMX. Oh, and, great! Uh, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the titles are very striking, and it, uh, well, I know exactly where they're coming from uh, with that because it is great fun to have uh, a title that's got a kind of twisted humour in it. Yeah. Sometimes they don't make it to the end of the end of the uh, track list. Sometimes you you might bottle out and think, well, that sounds a bit trivial. But actually, what I do is I put those titles in another file in my mind, you know, where I might make a comedy record one day, and I'd like, or comedy music, you know, not necessarily songs, but actually a kind of comic side of music. I think it would be so good, you know. It, it could start with like "Smile," you know, by Char- um, Charlie Chaplin, you know, and you could sort of mess about with that tune, and not only hoping that it would make people smile, but but. Uh, that's the kind of thing I can relate to where they're coming from because I do have titles which are a little bit too twisted to actually uh, to to release with the music that I might have thought of it with. But it doesn't stop me liking the title, and, and maybe there's a way. <laughs> it's funny you saying about humour because um, this record strikes me as quite a cheerful record in places. Uh, the song uh, "Showdown" almost reminded me of like a. Uh, like a 70s sitcom theme or something like not not in a, not in a bad <laughs> yeah. way but i could just imagine like you know a, some richard Breyer's kind of sitcom <laughs> like, yeah uh, i think you're right i think that's why we called it showdown because it, it, it you know with that word show in it you you, you almost you know picked up on a, a subtle hint there because it, it, it is i mean it, it, sometimes I've, i mean more recently i've been writing to you sometimes that actually aggravate me you know i mean there's they, they've got something aggravational about them. And, and maybe that's my comedy record, where they're kind of like tunes that are a bit kind of nerdy. And, and sometimes when you find the right sound to, to play that tune, it sounds really nerdy. And, and there's something really good about that. And, you know, I think we need uh, somewhere in, in the portfolio, we, we need to have fun and, and, and be light and, and not be as, as super serious musicians, you know which I think you have to be to have a long career. You have to have a very serious side. But I think also to show the light side, and, and I'm really glad you pointed that out because I think that is classically well spotted, you know, because it is. It's got a slight nerd factor, but it's kind of like you can see where we did it, you know, see how we took it on. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about your sort of emotional attachment to the music, and I wondered, because you're, te- you're, such a, you're a very technical player, Obviously, you're, you're not um, you, you don't play solos like Neil Young, you know, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're quite a technical player. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered the sort of relationship of kind of head versus heart. And, you know, if, for, for, for prog fans, you know, you've created some of the benchmark progressive music. You know, it's, I know you're probably bored mm-hmm. of talking about it. But when you think about songs like Close to the Edge and, and things that for a prog fan are just so moving and you know the sort of quintessential moments of the genre i wondered um what your kind of emotional engagement i guess what it was when you created that music and and how how it's changed over years because i think you get less as you get older even i'm only in my mid mid 30s but already i know 
that I'm less emotional about music than I was when I was in my early 20s. And I wondered how that has changed over years for you, your kind of emotional, that sort of head versus heart relationship. Has there been a change? Well, it's, um, I think it's a very close relationship. I think it's, it's a very hard one to dissect from, from the other ingredients. In other words, you don't want to bore your listener. Silly. <laughs> so if you see that as the far end of the, you know, of the undesirable edges of, of reality, and the other side, you, you, you don't want it to rely on emotion so much that it's either not melodic or, you know, it, it, it doesn't properly describe what you're feeling. So, yeah, I mean, you know, touching a guitar, I mean, I'd start with Spanish guitar. You know, if you, if you touch a Spanish guitar, you, you, you're very close to having a stronger emotional connection. And I can think of some work on Keys to Ascension um, where um, John uh, Anderson is singing and, and, and I'm playing Spanish guitar. You know, and there was a reason why that was put there, you know, because John was calling out a lot. You know, he was putting his heart and soul into this. And, and instead of coming in with a big guitar going, you know, with all that sustain or delays, and you've, got, you've just got a, a sort of hungry, pathetic, you know, Spanish guitar trying to sit on Yes's sound, you know, but of course it can work beautifully because because of that emotiveness, because of that um, shade, you know. So guitars, sounds, textures, they all have shades of different different things. So often, like when I play a steel guitar and I can think of on the solo album Turbulence, there's a tune called Wild Worms Burning. And when I'm playing, you know, I mean, I'm getting a buzz, you know, I mean, because I can't, I don't think I'm really able to play music without emotion. I I, I mean, I I hope you don't hear it. (laughs) I hope it escapes you because I I don't, I think the things are inseparable and uh, one can't emphasize or, or, one can't turn it up, you know, it's either there or it isn't, you know, and that's very much with creating your own sound. You can't really design what you're going to sound like. You, you sound like what you are, and that's a lot to do with how you actually play, how your fingers lay, how your plectrum sits, and then all the other, what guitar, what, what effects, what amp, you know, and who you are. But I think who you are is that emotional ingredient in the music. So, yeah, I love listening to guitarists when it, when it reaches me, you know, and I'll pick two, you know, Steve Moore's reached me. First time I heard him play, I just went, who's this guy? Where is he? I've got to speak to him. And the same thing happened with Martin Taylor. I said, who's this guy? I've got to reach him, you know, because I like to reach out to people who reached me, you know, and, and, and make sure they know I noticed them. (laughs) And that's not my ego. That's my wanting to learn, wanting to collaborate or wanting to spar, you know, with, with other great guitarists. Yeah, and you talk about the sort of classical guitar and the emotive, the Spanish guitar and the sort of emotiveness of it. It made, made me think of turn of a century being, you know, the obvious example of um, just the yeah. right, right choice of guitar for, now uh, that, for the song. The way that was constructed, it was completely unbelievable because when we started playing the song, we all suddenly went, can you stop playing the chords? I mean, those chords, they're not, they're not enough, you know, and they fill in. So we took the chords out, and then I did some improvising um, for quite a while. Then John picked out some bits where I, I played something he could really sing, and so he started to compile those bits and said, "Well, like, we put those bits here, you see, and then we, you know, but you do that like you did it here." So I learned improvisation and then put it out. But that, Jim, out of anything, I did. 
you know, is full of that tension. And, and I think that's so amazing that, uh, that the lyric is, is, is comprehensible in a more of a standard sort of way where, you know, it's about this sculpture, you know, and, and how he, you know, so, you know, it's got tragedy in it. And, and, and I think these are the ingredients that make for fine music. But certainly the, 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 the sense when I open on the guitar and, and play a, a backward spread, you kind of like, okay, we're somewhere. Where is it? You know, and we invented that. Where is it place? Yeah, and it's called Turn of the Century. But of course, it doesn't stop there. It grows into a, a big deal at the end, you know, with all the pounding. And, and it never becomes like a rock song, ever. But it becomes like a, an anthem um, towards the end, which which really paid paid off all that hard work on constructing a very intricate uh, start to the song. It's so powerful because... Um... I remember that album as a kid. So I knew the singles. Uh, my dad had Going For One and Wondrous Stories on 7-inch. And what's interesting is, um, so Going For One is edited, so you don't get the sort of end section. And oh. then uh, Parallels is a B-side. And then um, Wondrous Stories uh, yeah. has Awakened Part 1 as a B-side. So when <laughs> I eventually heard the album, Turn of the Century was the only complete song I hadn't heard at all. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, but then hearing Going For One in full, just so um, uh, so moving to hear that end section. Right. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, sort of a prog world. We're trying to put singles when there's not actually many songs on the album. Um, it's really sort of interesting way to then go into the album after having heard sort of most of it in kind of edited form or, or whatever. Well, let me say this, that when Atlantic edited Roundabout, we, we were like, what? You're going to take off the intro, the middle bit? I mean, you know, but we were thankful because that his chart, you know, it got us in the charts and, and, and it basically meant that they could play something on the radio that lasted, you know, normal length of time as opposed to 10 minutes, which was Roundabout. But those singles, I mean, I, I keep coming across things that I didn't know about, you know, but like you say, they, they did, like, I remember close to the edge, they did a Total Match Retain single, which was, you know, which was about four minutes of close to the edge. And we thought that was fairly bizarre. And, and we, we kind of like, with, so it didn't annoy us, we kind of took no notice of it, because I've always believed that that is not how you get a hit record. <laughs> if you want to hit a record, write a song like Two Tribes, get Trevor to Trevor Horn to produce it. You know, that's you know, if you want to go about it, go about it. But yes could never do that. We we were an album band and the more we stuck to that concept and ignored, you know, the short versions, the the better we were, I think, as a as a genuine uh, musical uh, uh, adventure. So basically, those singles really make me laugh. And, uh, you know, but I was lucky. I think I got clap on the back of Roundabout, <laughs> which was a very, which was quite a good thing. For royalties, at least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder what it's like trying to put together a yes set list now for you. I know sometimes you're doing like album concept shows, but so, for example, like for a 50th anniversary tour, I mean, is there stuff, I mean, what stuff are you sick of, sick of playing and what stuff has to be on there and what's, you know, how does that process work for you now? Is it, is it, does it just mess with your head or do you enjoy that process? Well, what I could say about that is mainly in the last 11 years since, you know, 2008 when Chris Allen Knight started off in, in, uh, in Canada with, with that first tour, which was a sort of like revitalized and more stable, yes, for those years. Although we, you know, we had some changes, but John Davison joined eight years ago, so it's amazing. Um, but in that time, we've played most probably more diverse and 
a wider sketch of yes music than ever before any yes has ever done because not only we played five complete albums in their entirety, you know, we carry on with that, our concept. We're open to do more things like that in the future. But also we've picked music from before by my time. We've picked music from the 80s. You know, so we basically try to see all the material as good and, and, and take take the best of it um, and, and, and not uh, not be too precious, you know. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. I've only seen you once, but you came to South End and you did uh, you did Close to the Edge, the Yes album, and going for the one all in one evening. And, That's right. Uh, that was amazing too. We've never done another one like that with three albums on one show. You know, we, we, uh, we felt that better to do two. Yeah. Um, is it, it what do you still love to play in the set list? What do you look forward to playing still? Well, I mean. You know, I don't mind anything, you know. But really? I, I've been very fortunate to have generally over the latter years of that of that eleven period, I've been able to come up with set lists that the guys like, you know. And if they say, oh, that's a good idea, or how about if we took this out but put that in, you know. So it stimulates thought patterns. And basically the set lists are a big responsibility. I, I absolutely adore trying to crack something, even if it's not 100%. It, at least it's a starting point. So those set lists have been uh, very well received over, over the years. And, and I love hearing people say, oh, I love the set. You know, to me, that's, oh, great. You know, what better thing can they say than we love the set? Because it's not about one song. You know, and certainly when you play in albums, it's nothing to do with one song. It's about the whole curve, the curvature of, of your album. You know, like Close to the Edge, it's great playing those three pieces and knowing when you start Close to the Edge, you're not going to really stop for 40 minutes. <laughs> So um, that, 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 that's a joy. I don't have anything, I mean, you know, there might be a song I might say, I don't want to play that, but we might play it again, you know. So that, I don't think one should ever say you're not going to, but obviously we know that 70s material is very, very accessible, very enjoyable, and it sat really well. You know, and the sign of a good Yes album was always how well we could play it on stage afterwards. And the sign of a, a bad one is, is when you, you grapple at rehearsals and none of the songs are really singing, you know. Uh, they're not working on stage so well. So that's a shame. And they're more the left, the left songs, uh, left alone songs that we don't play, you know, are the ones that most probably didn't work originally anyway. Yeah. I, I read, um, it's, this is going back a long way, but I read that your teenage band had a regular gig in Pentonville Prison. <laughs> for a while uh, yeah. and I just wanted to know I just wanted to know a bit about it it just sounded mad <laughs> right well amazingly I, I, because what I'm about to say is that it's, it's the very very earliest incarnation of the syndicates uh, I met Kevin uh, Driscoll and him and I just sort of fantasised that you know we, we would uh, get some gigs and form a band and we did that we, 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 we formed a band uh, all I can remember the year was when that Susan Maughan had a song out called I know I don't know what it's called now. Um, anyway, that's irrelevant. But it was very early on. And but basically, what happened was we got offered the gig. I can't remember how we got offered the gig. But what used to happen? We were, we used to arrive there. I think about six thirty, and there was just just like a a, a a youth hall, you know, just like a hall, you know. That's all we knew. And uh, yeah, it was at the prison, you know. And it was called the prison club, I think. So we go in there, and I had. At the time, Watkins Dominator Amp, which was fairly raucous. This is a very ambient little room. And we just kind of twanged away there, and, and that's how the band started to get regular work. You know, and we went on to play at the Swan in, in Tottenham, which I think is still there. 
But basically, that prison club experience was the only time we realised it was a prison is when we finished, because as soon as we finished and we started packing away, you know, the inmates came in and cleared up, you know. So it was a peculiar place to play, a bit like playing, I know this is going to sound weird, but but if you play uh, an Air Force base or something, you know, you're in a different world, you know, uh, and, and it's quite different, but it was pretty different in that place. I think like, uh, the Sex Pistols played Chelmsford Prison, apparently, and I think there's a great book to be written about prison gigs. Is there really? Okay, well, think about Folsom, yeah, Folsom Prison with old Johnny Cash. Yeah, of course, the obvious one, San Quentin and Folsom, yeah. yeah. Um, well, listen, I should let you go, mate. Thank you so much for talking. It's been, um, it's been a real privilege, and um, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Great, Matt. Thanks very much. Thanks for your questions, and talk to you another time, I hope. Yeah, I hope so. Take care, Steve. Okay, bye, bye mate. mate. Thank bye. you. Bye. bye. While you're here, if you haven't already subscribed, please do so. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, it really does make a difference to a new show like this. Thank you. And now my interview with Steve Hackett. Steve was guitarist in Genesis between 1971 and 1977. Steve has seemed in a good place career-wise this past decade. His willingness to play Genesis material has meant big tours, which also give his solo material more of a platform. This year he has a tour which features a performance of the classic Genesis album set in England by the pound. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know I'm a serious Genesis geek, so it was great to talk to Steve for the show. Hello. Hello, is that Matt? It is. Is that Steve? Steve, yes. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you, mate? Oh, right. Not too bad. Hay fever. But apart from that, you know, that's what happens this time of year. Has that been the case for a long time? Was it something you developed in later oh, life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've had, it for, I've had it for years. Yeah, ever since I was a kid. Really? Uh, August is my uh, is my month for it. You know, um, it's always at its toughest. So uh, it tends to wake up in the middle of the night. But apart from that, I'm OK. Good. Are you? Um, I gather you're in the UK at the moment. Yes, I am. Yes. Uh, at the moment, I am. Uh, I, I won't be shortly, but then, uh, yeah, we, we've been living out of a suitcase for quite a lot of uh, this year, and we will be as it goes on a couple of months in the States and Canada coming up. Is it tough travelling that much? I mean, I know you've lived it for so long. but Yeah, I, I, I have lived it for so long. I think uh, um, it's actually, um, it's a very simple life. You get driven or flown somewhere, Yeah, you show up, once you've found your hotel room and you sling your suitcase somewhere accessible, that's that's it. And you get yourself off to a sound check. You do a gig, fall over. Always sleep in strange beds because you're too tired to do anything else. Um, uh, but I think it's a great life in a way. You know, we turn up and make everyone happy. Um, I think I think it's still a big deal. It's 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 the chosen life. I, I'd rather do this than anything else. Yeah. Um, so obviously, <laughs> the, the the big selling point, I guess, for the tour is that you're playing, say, in England in fall. Um, yes. I wondered what you learnt about the album, having to go back and sort of forensically uh, deconstruct it and put it together again. Uh, have, have you learnt anything about the album? Yeah, I, I have. Um, what I figured out was to not just to remember my own parts, but also um, fill in for other people's parts that I might be doing 
suddenly myself. Um, and quite a lot of the Genesis early stuff was 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 based on these sort of chiming moments between three people chiming away on stage, um, lots of twelve strings and uh, and jangly keyboards and and so yeah we 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 have you know three people on on stage who do that but we might divide it up slightly differently the equipment would be slightly different but the, the overall effect would be the same yeah. uh, but we we can do things that you couldn't do at one time you know half speed guitars uh, sped up to sound very tinkly like musical boxes um you couldn't do that at, at that time but we can do it now because we can generate um octaves that we couldn't at one time so the technology is better and so that makes it easier but the memory test is still is still the same uh, but i i get get great joy out of doing that and ha- having sparkly lights accompany those chiming moments um they can cast a spell and i'm and i i was proud of it then and i'm i'm proud of it now it's nice for fans because obviously a lot of us were too young to have seen i was born in 83 so right the, the album was already 10 years old when i was born um and so yes. I, I know that you played most of the album on the 73 tour um but i think i'm right that after the ordeal and isle of plenty were never played by genesis so there's even moments like that, that uh, sort yeah of... ne- never played that, quite right and 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 deja vu the other track that peter gabriel introduced to the band um we never played that live yeah. um, it got finished uh, some years later but um so we include that like a deleted scene so you get the whole of the album in full um and uh, plus this you know deleted scene because uh, i want to you know um I want to do the complete thing, and, and, and in a way, it's a little bit like inviting people backstage as to what was going on in rehearsals um, and why this other number was introduced and why wasn't it included. And uh, we, we, It was a very long album, actually, most of Side 2. 54 minutes, uh, just under, yeah. Yeah, I, and I think Side 2 was something like 29 and a half minutes, which was almost unheard of. You know, some people were doing albums that long. But, but luckily, I think, because there was quite a lot of acoustic work, uh, and so, you know, it didn't eat into the, the plastic grooves uh, in, in vinyl terms uh, in in quite the way that rock stuff does. You know, you need deeper grooves as soon as you've got bass with something. But quite a lot of the Genesis stuff was was deliberately lightweight. And um, uh, I remember when I joined the band, um, uh, Mike Rutherford waxing eloquent about Joni Mitchell's guitar sound. I thought, this is unusual for a rock band. Yeah. I could be joining a rock band that thinking a bit like a, a folk quartet or something, um, but that's but that's fine. You know, it was part of the appeal and the charm of that was that it could go from a whisper to a roar, and um, uh, so doing that again, bringing it to people, um, is 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 still a joy. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask about the the length, and um, obviously you're right that dynamics are such a big part of the Genesis sound. But going back yeah. to the length of the record for a second, I read that there was some sort of disagreement over what to put on and what to leave off, which is why the ended up the record ended up being so long. Is there is there some yes. truth to that? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yes. What parts yeah, were controversial uh, then? Yeah, we yeah we, we we were always having this sort of you know. Um, uh, competition and, and con- controversy that, that went on within the band and um, um, I think that um, I think the album is all the stronger for, for having you know addressed all the extremes right um, it, 
It's a great album. It was at a time when John Lennon said that, that Genesis was a band that he was listening to, yeah. um, which was a thrill for us to hear. You know, just leaving New York, that he'd just given a uh, a, um, a New York interview to WNEW and said that that was, uh, you know, we were one of the bands he was listening to, that which felt great, you know, for us. I bet, yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's very special in, in, in my memory, this, this album. It's my favorite Genesis album. So uh-huh. um, I, we, we do that in full. And, and some other things, um, uh, Spectral Mornings, uh, yeah. we, we, we do that as well. Um, most of that we do live. Um, and a little bit of new stuff too, maybe three or four things off the new album. Split it into two halves. So it's a three-hour show um uh with a with a uh, an intermission um so yeah it's divided up into in, into periods you get the sort of present day then you get the sort of the the, the the late 70s heading into the 80s then you get you know very early 70s 73 was selling england by the pound and i'm I'm still selling england by the pound i was going to ask this because the obvious question for for like a fan might be whether you resent having sort of the legacy of Genesis is so huge. Is it, yes. is it somewhat of a, of a burden to still be <laughs> sort of have to, it must make a huge difference to your ticket sales and even to your solo album sales to go out and play, a, you know, Genesis material. And you've done it a lot in recent years. Yeah. Um, is there a frustration to that? Um, well, I don't see any downside to it. I think that um, you know we virtually become you know, two bands live. Um, I'm able to do solo stuff, um, um, and uh, when you contrast that with the Genesis stuff, I think it's um, oh, how can I how can I how can I put this uh, as modestly but as honestly as possible? I think it's probably at least as complex as the Genesis stuff, but I don't sure. think that it's any less digestible. And um, the funny thing is when people don't know what's Genesis and, you know, very young people who come along, maybe their dad might drag them along to something and and, and they'll say, uh, oh, well, I didn't realize what was one thing and what was what was the other. You know, they, uh, they found it as, um, they just saw it as a whole. So I see it all as a part of my past. Um, I can't claim sole responsibility by any means for that. You know, Genesis was a team that did this stuff. Um, um, and the emphasis was on the writing, which is why I think um, that material has survived in the affection of fans uh, for a very long time. It's a very competitive team. Not always easy to work with, um, but I think the end result kind of speaks for itself. It's interesting because I think uh, when Radiohead got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year, yep. and I read saw one of the speeches, and I th- it might have been Colin said, you know, Radiohead can be a difficult band to be a part of, but it can be also very rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I guess that maybe I get impression Genesis was probably like that. It's always very difficult, but ultimately some of the stuff you created is just magic. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there were you know a lot of, of very talented people who were um, in the band who uh, were to do great things in and beyond the band. Um, so uh, I, I think that I would say as a collection of individuals, um, each one of them that written a song that that, that 
you know, was capable of either thrilling you or, or moving you to tears. Each one of them was capable of, of that breadth of writing. And um, I, I think that's part of the reason why people are still listening to what we did in 1971, you know, which was Nursery Crime and then Foxtrot and Supper's Ready. And um, and it all kind of gets a, a reappraisal as it gets reinterpreted by different acts and a ton of tribute acts out there. And I... Yeah. Sometimes being out there, like last year, we did it with with an orchestra, um, the Heart of England Orchestra, and I'm just watching back the the DVD, which will be uh, be available. It's been been a long time coming. It's, you know, when you're watching back last year's tour, um, but that that's the way it works. You know, you've got a team on the road, and that same team has to be able to do the present day stuff as well as um, uh, you know the the old stuff. So. Um, um, uh, well, that you could just snap your fingers and have it mixed on the night, but it's but it, <laughs> it, but it's been mixed really well. Our, our sound mix did a fantastic job mixing this this stuff. band and orchestra sounds wonderful. Yeah, just quickly, were you influenced by seeing Genesis tribute bands filling huge halls? Did that sort of affect your decision to revisit a lot of this music? Sort of on. The well, road? I think that what, I think that when I first started um, revisiting Genesis, I did it with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. We had. Genesis revisited number one, and yeah. I did a lot of my favourites with that, Water of the Skies and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of it was made for orchestra, so we had the Royal Philharmonic and that, and um, and, and 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 a wonderful team of, of uh, people on it. Um, guys like Bill Bruford and John Wetton, uh, sadly yeah. no longer with us, John. But um, um, so that was extraordinary, and they weren't the, the, the tribute bands around at that time. Yeah. Um, uh, my my take on it was was that um, I was having this conversation with Julian Colbeck as we were heading back from Sicily at one point, having done some acoustic shows, and he said, you know, um, if you were to do something like this and you could do it live and do a uh, a record, he said, I suspect that you know that really fans want the complete story. Uh, they don't want just a few segues and a nod at the past. You know, if you're going to do it, you, you've got to do it properly. And so we decided to nail our colours to the mast right then and there. And we, we did a live version in in um, in Tokyo. Uh, we had the Tokyo tapes, which, which was the live version of that. And, and everyone in that band was was an absolute uh, you know, killer musician and, and writer. We had Ian McDonald from the original King Crimson, a foreigner. Uh, John Wetton, of course, um, who'd headed up not only King Crimson, but Asia. Um, there was Julian that I'd worked with uh, so much in the past, who'd also worked the Yes guys. So, you know, it was that pool of musicians, um, a number of bands, all of whom were sharing um uh, sometimes they were in and out of each other's bands. That was how how, how it worked, and um, they, they were a great team uh, to work with. Yeah. Um, at what point did you become interested in regional music? Was that something that influenced you when you were younger, or was it as you got yeah, older? Yeah. Um, well, I think sounds? when when I was doing Spectral Mornings in uh, nineteen seventy nine, I think it was. Um, I started using stuff like. Um, the, the Chinese Koto, um, and um, I'd already used kalimba, which was some piano African instrument with 
with uh, with Genesis, with Wind and Wuthering. Um, so these sort of regional instruments tended to creep in. Uh, at that time, I was doing them myself. Um, but um, by the time I was working in South America and in Brazil with with a whole kind of drum choir's worth, you know, uh, where you've got those different sort of um, Latin rhythms, um, uh, I was auditioning people on the spot and saying, oh, you do that? Okay, one man, one drum. Each guy trying to get as many sounds as he could out of one drum. And so that was a fascinating eye-opener for me. So I, I had to sit back and, and watch things happen. I suspect much in the same way that when... Um, Paul Simon was doing Rhythm of the Saints, and this predated that. Uh, you have to set aside ideas of your own professionalism, and you can't be the Führer. You've got to let people do what they're going to do and and reconstruct it later. Give it a frame later. So um, uh, that was that that was great. So I I love what we've done with that. So last album, bring it up to present day, we had uh, an incredible virtuoso. Uh, Indian sitar player, a lady called Shima Mukherjee, who um, just fantastic player, um, and, and many others. So I think for the last couple of albums, it's been 20 people from all around the world, um, all doing extraordinary things on extraordinary instruments, uh, like Malik Mansirov from Azerbaijan playing guitar, small stringed instrument. And, He's a guy that sounds like a cross between Ravi Shankar and John McLaughlin. He's got that level of chops, you know, fantastic technique. Um, and um, so I, I loved that. I, I, I love broadening what what a, a rock album should be capable of including. Yeah. How, how has your approach to creativity changed since since the early days? Uh, has it changed? I think I allowed things to happen more. Um, I give people space. Um, I stand back. Uh, I don't want to take every solo myself. Um, uh, I leave that to the guitar heroes, but I think it can be limiting to do that. You know, um, uh, guitars are extraordinarily capable uh, uh, instruments, and, uh, and I'm still in love with the sound of the guitar and all that it can bring. But I think guitar sounds all the more like guitar when you've sort of had a had a Contrast. diet of some other things in in between and you come back to the guitar and it's like oh yeah you know let's hear what he does best perhaps yeah is there anything you still want to achieve creatively um uh well i yeah it's 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 a, it's a tough thing but i think that in the mid 1960s having grown up listening to the beatles and watching them grow up through the um, the addition of other instruments, not just orchestral instruments, but uh, the mainstreaming of, of all these things that we once thought of as ethnic and regional, um, you know, that was that was it. They were always going to be a hard act to follow, um, and I had hoped that Genesis would um, expand and start working with with, with orchestras. Um, instead of which we were a band that tended to get smaller. And this idea that, oh, you should do it all in-house. And, um, they, this, you know, that that's great. Trios can do extraordinary things, especially on record by the time, you know, you track yourself up and everything. But, um, but I think this idea of sharing across the globe is, is, 
is still the challenge. Yeah, how can you assimilate um, a Tadouk player from Armenia or from Paris um, and still keep it rock? You know, how do you how do you do that? That's that's the challenge. And I guess um, in this day and age, without it becoming what would be seen as like just cultural appropriation as yeah. well, you know, that must be. Well, a... I, I think that if you're if you're this this is the real challenge. If you're a gifted enough writer, if the writing is good enough, um, you can get everyone to suspend their belief. Maybe like like watching film, and I think sometimes these things can be soundtrack based. I, have, I might have an invisible film in in my mind. It doesn't have to be a video every time, but the idea of doing a film for the ear rather than the eye to make music. Um, to have it conjure image, images, I, th- I think that's what the best writers have always managed to do. That whatever genre they were, they were in. Yeah, um, I should let you go, mate. Thank you sure. so much for talking, um, and I hope the uh, next leg of a tour goes really well. And um, you look after yourself. Thank you very much. Been lovely talking to you. Likewise, Steve. Take care, mate. Cheers, Matt. Thank right. you very much. No worries. All Bye. the best. You too. Bye. 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 That's our show. Thanks, of course, to our guests whose opinions are our own. Thanks also this week to Matt Ingham, Sharon Chevin, and John Miles. See you next month.